0: You know, one of the themes on money talks has been the lack of practicality when we're looking at, you know, the electric vehicle revolution or the renewable energy transition that I just simply said, where's the money, where's the materials coming from? We've rarely talked about that. And another side of that subject, I mean, I've virtually never heard it is what are the trade offs we're making when we go that? I mean, just simply the mining impact on the environment, things of that sort. Well, finally, somebody's addressed that. Ernest uh, Scheider is senior correspondent for Reuters. He focuses on the energy transition, but he's written a brand new book just released. You can get it on Amazon, The War Below, Lithium, Copper, and the Global Battle to Power Our Lives. Uh, Ernest, thanks so much for finding time for us. Hey, it's great to be with you, Mike. What, What a welcome subject in my eyes is, again... You know, I'm not debating whether we have electric vehicles renewal, but we need a full discussion of it. And this, the side you're talking about and done a great job with the book, The War Below, is, hey, there are trade-offs in this kind of thing. Uh, had you noticed that same dearth of information or side of that debate too?
1: I had. And I got to tell you just a little bit of context, Mike. So before I wrote about the critical mineral space for Reuters, I wrote about oil and gas. I did that for mm-hmm. about four or five years. And I spent time living in North Dakota uh, and writing about the fracking boom and and the industry going on there. And a lot of people would ask me, fracking good or bad? And I think folks tend to go on one side or the other with the oil or gas industry, depending on where your perspectives are. When I transitioned my coverage to go to the critical mineral space, one of the things that I noticed, though was that people across all different, shape, uh, all different perspectives were saying, yes, yeah, we, we do need more of these critical minerals. We think, sure, we want electric vehicles and why not? We need more electric gadgets and gizmos. But they weren't really deciding or debating about where we want to get those. And so even though there's a, a wide realization that we need more of these, we're not having the debate about where, how, and why we actually want to produce them. And really what I'm bringing to the audience here with the book is the idea of choice. What are the choices that we're willing to make if we want this energy transition and if we want all these electric gadgets and gizmos that are increasingly powered by critical minerals?
0: And it seems so just recently, uh, at least my impression is that we just discovered they come from China, if you're looking at rare earths and the refining side, not just the mining, the refining side. Yes. And of course, China's a challenge, at least it is for me, with slave labor and those kind of issues. Obviously, environmental deg- degradation is an issue, you know, and the geopolitical tension. But we didn't even admit that, for goodness sakes.
1: Right. I mean, that is... One of the key tension points that I push into here in the book is how the past 30 or 40 years, China has really cornered the market for the production supply chain for these critical minerals. And so whether it's, it's a gargantuan use of copper and the big contracts that it has with Chile and other large copper producing okay. countries, or how it's cornered the market for these 17 minor metals known as rare earths that are extremely important for weapons uh, and other electronics, um, or whether how it's Really focused to laser around control of the global lithium refining market, and lithium underpins the lithium ion batteries, which are extremely important. And so, this geopolitical tension there really is the undercurrent that goes through the entire book because these can be used as economic weapons. And indeed, we saw China do that in 2010 when it blocked exports of rare earths. It has also blocked recently exports of rare earth technology to the United States and other countries, and it has, and it has, excuse me move to block exports of other minor metals as well. And so these are economic weapons that are being used. And whoever controls these critical mineral production and processing will control the 21st century economy the way that oil helped define control of the 20th century economy. And we're not having that discussion, but it's a reality.
0: Well, The War Below does a great job of of sort of pointing out that and then the implications. I mean, one of the things that I've been on about, because I just find it appalling, as simple as that, is the use of child labor, you know, in the mining uh, in the Congo for cobalt, as an example. Uh, again, very little recognition or uh, admission of that that's the case, too, which is, I mean, part of this, or the major part of the impetus is the things you discuss in the book for bringing some of that production back into the U.S., but back into Canada and other sort of, let's call them Western jurisdictions. But again, that's why I think the book is just so timely, because that is certainly not without challenges.
1: Correct. Uh, One of the key examples that I talk about in the book is the proposed Twin Metals Project, which is in northern Minnesota uh, near the Canadian border. And this, your listening audience uh, might be familiar with the Boundary Waters, which, as the name implies, is a giant body of water that forms the boundary between the United States and Canada, and this particular project that I explore in one of the chapters wants to be developed by a company known as Twin Metals, and it's an underground deposit of copper and cobalt and nickel. And if it were being, if it got greenlit by U.S. officials, it would be a huge supply for the entire region for these critical minerals and metals. But the tension point comes in the type of rock that these metals are found in. So if you extract it out and it gets exposed to water, it can, in some instances, form acid. And obviously, nobody wants acid to get into the boundary waters or the Great Lakes. They obviously form a huge part of the North American waterway infrastructure. And they're the beating heart, really, I would argue, of the economic engine for that entire region of the continent. Now, I should say that the company that wants to produce these metals says it can do so cleanly and safely. But a lot of conservationists and other outdoor recreational enthusiasts in the region are saying that that's a huge concern. Like, how would you clean it up if there were an accident? And and so right now the project is on, is on hold, is on ice. But supporters of the project point out, Mike, to your point, the huge use in the Democratic Republic of the Congo what's called artisanal mining and these are people that might break onto mine sites late at night or just even dig under their house to try to find cobalt and sometimes you can have children as young as 6 or 7 that might be part of this supply chain just to earn some some money to help put food on the table but sometimes these kids can be maimed they can even be killed unfortunately and it's really hard to trace once they sell that rock to a middleman that sells it to a refiner that goes into the global supply chain it's really hard to trace if that cobalt Originated with a small child putting pickaxe and shovel into the ground. And so I'm not necessarily saying it's this sort of black or white argument, like if we don't dig in northern Minnesota, then that's going to boost mining in the DRC. But what I am saying is we're not having that discussion point right now around that tension, around what are the choices we're willing to make. And maybe the answer is we just don't mine here and we're comfortable having fewer electronics. But the way that our economic situation is growing right now. It does not seem that that is a choice we're having. So I really hope that the War Below sparks a conversation in Canada and the United States and elsewhere for where we hope to get the building blocks for our everyday lives.
0: Yeah, I would say sparks a realistic conversation because that's what I think has been lacking. Uh, You know, it's interesting with the example you gave there because obviously people don't want to polluted in any way their water supply, let alone the Great Lakes, you know, that feeds North America. But It would seem to me there won't be a solution here simply because, you know, people who are, many of the people who are concerned about that, it's sort of the precautionary principle. You know, if there's even a 1%, you know, percent chance of a problem, they say no to the project. I mean, it's, you know, they would just be dug in. At least that's my experience with many of other similar situations. It's zero tolerance. And well, I don't think you get agreements with zero tolerance.
1: Well, that certainly is what industry would say to a lot of these issues. It's like you can't, I mean, there's no such thing as pure certainty yeah. in life, you know, obviously. Um, and and so that's this is a rejoinder that you get from industry. And I think policymakers are caught in the middle here, you know, trying to wade through the complexities of these issues. Uh. What I think is going to have to happen, though, is for the average consumer, for the average voter in a lot of these Western nations to actually join the debate, to not just leave it for Ottawa or Washington to figure out, or for the manufacturers of the equipment that they use every day, whether it's cell phones or vehicles, but to actually be part of the conversation. We've seen glimmers of this, Mike, in the apparel industry. You Remember that a few years ago, there was several large fires, unfortunately, at but were essentially sweatshops in Bangladesh. And these were horrible conditions where workers were, you know, well underpaid uh, and they, some of them ended up dying in these fires, but they were making clothing for very well-known brands sold across the world. And so you started to see consumers really push back for obvious reasons as to this horrible way that these clothes were being produced. I'm curious to see what the book and other talking points around these issues does for critical minerals, because I think we need to be having a broader conversation about where we get these building blocks and consumers need to lead it. The average people need to leave it because once they do that, then that will have a bottom up effect on the entire supply chain, as well as from the policy front. Right now in the United States, I mean, there's a hodgepodge of federal laws, but the main law that's governed hard rock mining in the United States has been around since 1872. That's a I really, know. really long time. <laughs> so. It probably should be updated.
0: Well, but I love that you're putting the emphasis also on consumers because we're getting an example now that might be somewhat helpful. I mean, uh, Apple has been so uh, highly criticized and I think justifiably so about not caring really what their supply chain looks like, especially when you've got Xinjiang province in, in China, you know, with slave labor, you know, talk about some of their suppliers use forced labor, you know, and so you're watching, you know, transition out of China to some degree anyways, or small degree. I'm watching other other uh, you know, uh, cell phone makers sort of boast that they're not there. So maybe, you know, your point, I just don't want to lose it here, is that, you know, consumers can have an impact saying, no, that's not good enough here. you got to do something different here.
1: Correct. I think that's exactly the nail on the head. I mean, manufacturers respond to what their consumers want. You know how, a a minor aside here, but I think it's connected. um, When you go onto a car lot now, what's the number one thing on the sticker, at least in the United States, and I'm assuming in Canada, Miles per gallon for an internal combustion engine, yes. people look at that metric, and electric vehicles obviously don't have a mile per gallon thing t- to worry about, um, but I think increasingly you're going to see consumers say, okay, what was the total ESG footprint of this vehicle, and that can be connected to did the lithium come from Chile or did it come from Quebec? you know did it come from Nevada or did it come from Australia um, and I think these are the kinds of things that are going to increasingly be asked for by consumers because they're going to want to know that you know while, hey, I might be doing a good thing for the environment by buying an electric car and not emitting when I drive, I want to know that the metals weren't coming from some far-flung place and I was emitting as part of the shipping process or I wasn't contributing to child labor in the DRC or elsewhere. I think increasingly these are going to be asked for by consumers. And I chronicle in the book, the efforts by Tiffany and company, actually the jewelry company to help form this new mining certification program that so far has got support from Ford and BMW and Microsoft and others that is growing, but it's a way for mines to be basically judged on certain key metrics And then the results of the test, if you will, are made public for everyone. There's no hiding. And so this way, everybody in the entire supply chain can know how that mine operates, how it pays its people, how it, how much water it uses, how much water it recycles, all of these things that go into the ESG footprint, because I think increasingly consumers are going to demand this information so that they can make the best decision they know how with their purchasing power.
0: Uh, let me come to something else in the book, another example, rather, because it's, sure. it's different from these. You know, the, uh, is it pronounced Railate Ridge Project? You know, the lithium Righ-Lite project Ridge. I'm yep. talking, uh, yep. you know, a huge one. I mean, what is it? One of two really monster ones in the States. Lithium, yep. of course, as you alluded to, batteries, and not just for cars, not just for EVs, but other, you know, uses. Uh, I, I just found the opposition to that fascinating. I'll let you
1: describe it. Sure. This is a site about 200 miles north of Las Vegas, and it's a massive deposit of lithium that's also intermingled with boron, which is used to make soaps. So the company that wants to develop it, it basically sees two potential revenue streams here. It can sell the soap, which is which is great. I mean, anytime you can sell two products is awesome. And then it can sell the lithium. What At the start of the company, they hope to sell it in the United States. That's their main goal, to really help United States resilience. And the problem though, is that this site... In Nevada is also the home to this rare flower found nowhere else on the planet this is the only spot in the entire world that this flower has been found and the tension right from the beginning is this question of whether or not the mine can be developed with this flower and they have the company pitted against this conservation group that is saying no like what matters is biodiversity if we let this flower go extinct in the name of fighting climate change are we going to let something else go next you know is it going to be an animal or something else so we just sort of let go and the tension on the other side is you've got this company led by this very earnest man who used to be in the oil and gas industry and sees his fight to build this lithium mine as sort of key to leaving the planet cleaner for his grandchildren and children than the one that he found and the of course the the, the deep see the tension here is not only between the lithium and the flower, but sort of broader questions around climate change, um, the fight against climate change, and the fight over biodiversity. If we did nothing, if we just let climate change go unabated and didn't produce this lithium, would the flower go extinct anyhow, because of climate change? Um, What do we matter more? You know, I mean, it's there are millions of types of flowers on the planet, you know, is this one worth it? Is it a true slippery slope? If we let this one go extinct and others go extinct as well? Can the mine and the flower coexist. Um, and these are the things that the book explores through real human detail and human storytelling. Because I was, I was very keen here not to write a book about geology or investing. I wanted to write a book about people because these are issues that affect all of us. So I wrote a book for everyone.
0: Yeah. And and that's where I think so much of the success, I mean, the way you've, you've framed it, but you've just done a great job. And I loved it in the book. When you have that You know that's the choice. That's to me. That was the essence of the book. Like, make a choice. There Mm -hmm. are you know fallouts everywhere. What have you found? uh, Like, I think we've been on this sort of one track. We're going to push it forward. Now we're getting into reality. Now these choices are coming front and center. Do you? Would you bet that these kinds of things brought forward, and and we're the reality, not them being bring forward, but the reality will delay the energy transition? I mean, some of the. Uh, some of the goals are very, very ambitious. You know, we're all going to be in EVs by 2030 or 2035. You know, and we're no more near the amount of cobalt we'd need to do that. Right. Uh, I read a study out of the UK describing well, if the UK was going to was proposing to do that, they'd need all the cobalt in the world right now. You know, that kind of thing. We know from you know, people in the mining industry the incredible need for copper that's going to come with the renewable energy, the EV revolution, those kinds of things. Uh, so do you think one of the hesitations here is that th- just even addressing these kind of concerns on that local level which you've done very well in the book to me that just means you know that timeline's not realistic
1: well Mike I, w- I would agree with you there the more I added up the plans by Washington and Ottawa and Brussels and other governments around the world to go fully or all or partially excuse me fully or partially electric you just do some math on the back of an envelope and you realize okay well if if this is the goal, how are we going to actually get there? And the book is an offshoot of my work at Reuters. And I would cover specific projects for Reuters, but I would keep getting a no on each one. You know, Each project was facing a lot of opposition. And it really wasn't my perspective or even goal in the book to say whether or not these mines should be built or should not be built. But just doing the simple math, I would say, okay, if we want to go fully electric, as as you were saying, by 2030, 2035, you're going to need a lot more lithium. Like Here in the United States, President Biden has set this really ambitious goal of having all of the vehicles that the US federal government owns, which are a lot of cars, uh, uh, go fully electric by 2035. And you're going to need to have, as you say, a lot more lithium, copper, cobalt, and nickel, and many other critical minerals to reach that goal and so if we are not going to produce them here in the united states well where are we going to get them from and are we going to get them from china like that seems like a huge probably not what the the, the policymakers in washington have been intending um, and so it does seem to delay um, on paper it would delay these electrification goals and and let's remember it's 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 not just about how do you build the electric vehicle it's then how do you build the charging network, which requires a lot of copper and other critical minerals. And then it's also much, much more than just transportation. You know, I've a, a chapter in the book that seems kind of whimsy, but it's about leaf blowers. Yep. And for me it was a way to bring to the reader this idea that this issue is not just about electric cars. Yes. So a few years ago I I got a house and I decided to sort of live that suburban dream of of, you know, mowing my own lawn and I got an electric lawnmower and an electric weed whacker and yes and an electric leaf blower. But I had just started writing this book, Mike, and it took me down a rabbit hole of, okay, if getting an electric leaf blower is better than having one powered by a two-stroke engine, where did all those metals in that leaf blower come from? And I couldn't figure out where any of them came from, including the cobalt. I had no clue if a young child took it out of the ground in the DRC. And, and I have a lot of resources at my disposal. I still couldn't figure it out. And that, so that's just a leaf blower. now. extrapolate that across the millions of other electronic devices that we all use every day cell phones, laptops, etc. All of these are powered by critical minerals. So this is an issue that goes beyond just uh, transportation. And I think that for me, that really crystallizes uh, the tension here around this idea of of choice or the choices we're not making.
0: You know, when I read that part of the book, I I, got to say, I had a big smile on my face. I I sort of muttered the word finally, you know, (laughs) because it's not just as you say, it's so many aspects of our lives. And all I want is a realistic conversation, you know, a practical, realistic conversation. And that's why I think the book goes so far. But I'd also, um, you know, remind people, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's Ernest Scheider, and I'll just be S-C-H-E-Y-D-E-R, follow him on Twitter, you know, senior correspondent for Reuters. But again, here's the name of the book, The World Below, Lithium, copper, and the global battle to power our lives. And I say, I read a ton of stuff, and I I really did say, finally, somebody's addressed these many, many issues that are so pertinent to what's going on and key. I mean, you know, if we're not getting, you know, the geopolitical tensions, we're not going to be relying on China. It can be weaponized. That kind of stuff has all come to the forefront. Well, then the debate begins in other areas. And Ernest, you've done a fantastic job with that, and I highly recommend the book.
1: Awesome. Great to be with you, Mike. Thanks for your time. Thank you.